1: For some of you listeners, you may not know that the Weather Geeks podcast used to be a television show on the Weather Channel. However, one year ago, we relaunched the program in this podcast format. This gave us the ability to have more in-depth discussions and really geek out with some of our favorite guests. For our one-year anniversary, we are going to count down our top 10 favorite episodes of the podcast so far. David Titley is a retired rear admiral and chief oceanographer of the U.S. Navy. He's also the former NOAA chief operating officer and is currently a professor of meteorology at Penn State University. In this podcast, Titley pulled back the curtain on how the military can maintain operational readiness in a changing climate. He also went on to say the future will not be the past for climate. Here's more now.
2: If anybody's been following and, and listening to the uh, House uh, Commerce Committee, the Science Committee, the Energy Committee, to me, the most remarkable thing is not what the Democrats are saying, but what the Republicans are saying. Now, they're not all jumping up and down and saying, hey, let's go uh, deal with climate as our number one issue. It's not that. But by and large, uh, the Republican leadership, as far as the ranking members of these committees, is saying climate change is real. It is primarily caused by humans, and we need to do something. Well, Uh, David,
1: let me jump in. Well, first, why is that shifting from your perspective? I mean, because I'm seeing that from my sort of orbits as well, the places that I'm uh, matriculating in. Uh, Is there a shift Is it just sort of political savviness given sort of the the political winds of the moment or has it always been there, but they just weren't as able to talk about it because the the leadership wasn't bringing it forward?
2: I mean, the short answer and a little bit snarky is, yes, it's, it's kind of all of the above. It, it's, of course, political. I, I remind my science friends because, you know, we in the science community, we like to think we're smart because we can do partial differential equations and write, you know, things with funny symbols on them. I remind my science friends that, you know, those, those members of Congress you talk to, they may not have the same degree of science or hard science and physics and physical uh, science education you and I have, Marshall, and, and our students uh, but they sure understand their people, and they probably understand people, frankly, better than most scientists do. Most physical scientists. What we're seeing, and and your li- your listeners may may have seen this, but there's a a long running poll done by Yale and George Mason University that has been very consistent for well over a decade in how they poll attitudes of the American people on climate. And I actually wrote an article in the Washington Post uh, in February, and I titled it. The the end of the beginning, to steal a phrase from Churchill. What we're seeing is for the first time uh, now a majority of Americans believe that climate change is going to impact either them or their families directly, and it's going to happen now. So up until now, as as you know, because you've been working in this uh, space at least as long as I have, many people have said, "Well, maybe this is happening, but it's kind of distant, maybe the future." I'm not sure I, you know, it's not today's issue. Maybe it affects fuzzy polar bears. That's sad for them, but you know, it doesn't what about me? The polling is showing that many more people, I think after the disasters, the weather disasters we've seen in 2017 and 2018 and you know, we can just go around the country between floods, the wildfires, the the very intense hurricanes, massive freshwater flooding, storm surge, you name it, uh, people are starting to get the message and I think also Marshall something you and I both worked on, that National Academy of Science uh, report on attribution of specific weather events where we stated, and really it wasn't you and me, it was the National Academy of Science stated that we can, in fact, attribute many, not all, but many uh, specific weather events to a changing climate, whether they're more likely or more severe and i think all of this is coming together and those politicians do understand their constituents and they see how the constituents are, hey, this is an issue. And they're running. They're running to catch, especially on the center right and the right, they're running to catch that train, because uh, they see this is where their constituents are going. And you probably know, I've said for many, many years, that Congress will not lead on this issue, but they can be led. They're yeah. being led by their constituents. What are just some other things that, that, that we can talk about uh, here in the public space that sure. people
1: might not think about as it relates to sort of military readiness or national security?
2: so th- th- thanks Marshall yes you you uh, you met if I recall correctly you were actually a member of a National Academy of Study. Uh, uh uh, board, if you will. I was. Uh, lo- looking, looking at uh, the the implications of climate change from the Navy. So I really appreciated that because it's great to have sort of that external look, if you will, from the National Academies and kind of get that Good Housekeeping seal of approval. Now, probably your younger viewers are wondering who Good Housekeeping is <laughs> or <your laughs> listeners, right. but, but you and I know that's, who We know is. who it is. We know right. who that it's is. It's
1: a magazine. It's, it, think it, of it like the sort of modern sort of day, sort of every person's um Every FDA, person's. FDA stamp of approval.
2: Kind, kind of consumer reports That's almost, right. consumer back in report. the day. That's right. But any, anyways, uh, so it was great to have that external look. But the other parts, uh, we so we've talked about changes in the operating environment of the Arctic, but just the very, um, the risks that we have, and you, you mentioned this briefly with Nebraska, we're seeing this play out with a very, very strategic Air Force base in in uh, near Omaha called Offutt Air Force Base right now, but threats to our our infrastructure. So the the way the the military our U.S. military works is we want to play what I call the away game. It's not playing, but we we want to be over there, wherever over there is, to, to try to minimize threats to our security, and if worse comes to worse, as as it all too frequently frequently does, uh, to fight them. We don't want to be fighting in the streets of New York and San Francisco. We, If we have to fight, we want to fight far away from, from our home base. But to do that, we need, again, those ready troops, those troops, those soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that can really do anything under very, very hard, hostile conditions, and we try train them up at our bases and on our training ranges. And you can kind of just go around the country and take a look at these ranges. And of course, you know, the the sort of the two poster childs from last year were Tyndall Air Force Base, where the Air Force had some of their most advanced fighter jets. We call them F-22s. Camp Lejeune, which is, the Marines only have two really big bases and Camp Lejeune is one of them in North Carolina, both of which were devastated by different hurricanes. Tyndall, of course, by Hurricane Michael and Lejeune by really the flooding, not so much the wind, but the flooding and the freshwater flooding uh, did tremendous damage, billions of dollars of damage on both of these bases, so much damage on Tyndall that the chair of the readiness subcommittee on the House Armed Services Committee publicly said at the end of the hearing I testified at last week, should we rebuild Tyndall? Now, if that doesn't wake up the Air Force, I don't know what will. That wow. was a, you know, and there's a ton of there's a ton of operational reasons to build it back. Of course, there's all the politics of you know bases, but this chairman is saying, my God, I'm going to spend three, four, five billion dollars to rebuild it. And what happens in the year 2021, 2027? You know, we get another. Massive hurricane, even higher levels of storm surge because of rising sea levels. He's thinking about that, and he's thinking about it publicly. So, our threats to our our bases and and uh, training ranges is another another huge issue that the military has to deal with.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about that. I, as I recall that report, one of the things that struck me is someone that you know was somewhat new to the sort of that world, but you know just common sense. Once it was mentioned, is the, is, is that you know in the case of the U.S. Navy and perhaps Perhaps Marines too. Many of the bases are at or below sea level. Is
2: that right? <laughs> well, well, they're they're at sea. level. I, I tell people, you know, it's kind of a Navy thing. It's a ship thing. We tend to put our bases at sea level because that's usually where ships are. Uh, we're we're not the Air Force, and we can't all just move to Minot, North Dakota. Although moving to Omaha, Nebraska hasn't hasn't really helped them uh, right now. Sure. So yes, the Navy is going to deal with this. But I'll I'll tell you, Marshall, all of these services have. Uh, vulnerabilities every service does have significant uh, bases at or near sea level in the Norfolk area. I would argue that the Langley Air Force Base just nor- north of the Norfolk Naval Base may be even more vulnerable to storm surge and sea level than is norfolk it's it 's very very low they 're already having to uh, to to basically build build basically levees and, and things like that for them. Uh, pretty but pretty much as you go around uh the country you know we really need to and and, and we're trying to get the congress to direct the the Pentagon to do this is really take a hard look at the different vulnerabilities from a changing climate on each base, and then you kind of take a look at how valuable what the military use of that base is. And you can imagine, you'd sort of get this, uh, you know, two-by-two two kind of matrix, right? M- you know, military value on one axis and climate vulnerability on the other, and you find the bases that have greatest risk to climate and are of the highest value, you know, and then I can say, hey, if I had a dollar to put into res- resilience and adaptation, those are the bases I would first do because we're not going to be able to do everything all at once. So we're trying to help the, both the Pentagon and the Congress kind of think through how to manage this, this, this risk because, you know, as you know, uh, we used to be able to just look back in the past, 50 years, 100 years, and say, well, the past is going to tell us what the future is. And and if your listeners don't take away anything else but this one point, and that is, is that the future will not be the past for climate. We are we are changing and we are going to be frankly changing that climate for the rest of everybody's lifetime who is listening to this podcast today. And that's just that's just the reality we're living.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you said that because, you know, when I look back at some of my assessment and even talking to people after Hurricane Harvey in uh, Houston a couple of years ago, I talked to people that lived in Houston and they were like, yeah, we flood all of the time. We didn't think it was going to be that bad. I mean, we get floods here in Houston. That's just what Houston does. I said, yeah, but you're basing your assessment, you're basing future actions on the past. I mean, you're on an anomaly event by its de- definition. It's an anomaly. So you probably haven't seen anything like it before. So I, I think what you're saying is sort of along the same lines is uh, we've gotta kind of adjust how we even think about events that we were so used to or we fondly remember growing up. It's just a different
2: world it 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 is and and it's just something so hard for all of us. i mean you know i put myself in this you know we all can think back 30 40 50 years whatever uh, but that just is not the climate that we are going to have anymore, and really, even if we somehow magically went to a, you know, a zero-carbon zero world instantly, which of course is not going to happen, you know, it would still take several decades for, for basically the, the Earth to adjust, get the oceans and the atmosphere back in balance. Dr. Walker Ashley of Northern
1: Illinois University has spent years examining how severe weather events can expose weaknesses in our local community infrastructure, sometimes with tragic consequences. During this podcast, Ashley explains something called the expanding bullseye effect and why some communities may be finding themselves at higher risk of being impacted by a major weather event.
3: And Dr. Ashley, like you, on that um March 2019, first weekend in March uh, 2019, uh, tornado outbreak, uh, the information I was seeing on social media from some of the local National Weather Service offices, I think they were doing a great job of really hitting home the certainty that something bad was going to happen. Uh, how do you think we we connect the dots here? You mentioned earlier about uh, educating children at a young age, uh, getting it you know, part of the fabric of a family—is uh, it about education, or do we need to rethink uh, mobile homes as well in the long term?
4: Yeah, manufactured housing is an interesting industry. Um, some of them are are relatively well built. Uh, um, the issue, I think, becomes the the fact that the framing is relatively thin, um, and the sheathing is relatively thin, uh, and whether or not they're installed correctly. Uh, tie-downs and various other actions that occur with a manufactured house, uh, at least if it's up to code, um, should hopefully make that home less vulnerable. But at the same time, it still only requires about 45% of the wind force to destroy a manufactured house compared to that of a permanent house. So the distinct vulnerability there that I think that we need to, particularly our engineers and the folks in the manufactured housing community, um, need to start maybe taking a look at a little bit more intently and realize that there is an issue there and that we don't just push it off to the side as the fact that we're making economical uh, housing. Um, this is only going to grow as a, as a problem. There's more and more manufactured housing out there. And with the evolution of, of the risk of, of tornadoes and other various hazards out there to to climate change, um, it seems as though this is going to become an increasing problem as we move through the 21st century.
3: Yeah, and you speak with knowledge as well. And oftentimes, uh, when leaders, government leaders, uh, managers of businesses and organizations, they need data to make some decisions or to point to some of the decisions or support the decisions they've made. We talk about some of the research and some of the data that you've accumulated on this subject?
4: Yeah, so we've I've looked at various things. I've looked at uh, um, mortality, tornado mortality, broadly across the United States, and um, that that research extends some ten years back. But we've we've zeroed in on a couple of issues with the uh, changing risk. Uh, that is the changing climate of of tornadoes. And also the changing vulnerability, and that is namely the the exposure that is us humans and our buildings and our built environment out there, particularly our housing. Um, and so we've we've commingled those uh, and, and looked at those and how we expect them to change in the 21st century. The other thing that we've been focusing on with a Vortex Southeast grant is looking at manufactured housing and how it varies across the central part of the United States, which we typically think of as as the greatest tornado threat in the United States, although there's a little bit of a problem with that, um, as I might mention here shortly. But the other issue is looking at the comparison between the central United States as manufactured housing and that in the Southeast, particularly in Alabama and Mississippi and in locations like Tennessee and Georgia. And what we found with that research is, is somewhat surprising. The, the The number of manufactured houses in in places like the South is much much greater than what we find in the Great Plains, and most importantly, the distribution of those houses across the landscape is much much more spread out in the South than what you find out, for instance, in Kansas and Oklahoma. In Kansas and Oklahoma, those are the manufactured housing is much more in a community. Um, what we sometimes would would t- call a park but in the south they're scattered throughout the rural landscape yes there's are certainly manufactured housing communities and parks but at the same time a lot of our rural locations much like what we experienced in early March um, have high very high populations of folks living in manufactured housing as well and so what we found is that the the, uh, the, the, the if we just r- simulate tornadoes across these landscapes, that the likelihood of folks being impacted um, in in Alabama in manufactured housing was about three and a half times that of what we found in Kansas. So these people are at a very heightened threat in in the mid south.
3: And not to be crass or you know. D- overly uh, insensitive, but essentially, it's just there's more targets out there. Is that what you're saying? I mean, it's like a, a bigger dartboard?
4: Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. And this is something we've called the expanding bullseye effect. And, and really, you can fit anything you want in there. So our cities, our, our manufactured housing, our permanent housing, um, the development pattern in this country since World War II has been to grow and spread. And so I liken it to, uh, you know, the bow and arrow, the archery range where you take uh, uh, an arrow and think of an arrow as, as a tornado. But over time, your your target has been growing and growing immensely. So the likelihood of that arrow striking the bullseye or the, the uh, unfortunately, people in this case has been growing immensely. And so the threat level in particular in the Mid-South and the Southeast part of the United States has grown much more significantly than what we found in the Midwest or in the Great Plains. And that's just simply because more people have moved to the Sun Belt and we've spread across that landscape. Those of you that travel to Atlanta or Birmingham or any of these communities in the South know the sprawling nature of our cities in that in those regions.
1: Former NFL pro running back turned environmental warrior Ovi Mihaly sat down to discuss how he plans to teach kids about the environment. As an eco-warrior, he also touches on how this is an issue for the masses. Mihaly says this, people just don't get it until it affects them. Here's more on that conversation now. I just met you today, but clearly I can see that you're a very intelligent, thoughtful young man, and as well as a, a, an elite athlete. Many athletes use their platforms for things like children's health or or, uh, economic disadvantage or social justice, all of which are very important. You've chosen the environment and, and, and the planet. Do you get any pushback? Have you experienced pushback from ideological extremes or people that say, oh, that's that's a hoax, all that
5: stuff? Why are you wasting your time? I do. I, I really do. And it's, it's surprising. Well, they, they hesitate to push back on me in well, person. Well, when they, when they, in person, I can <laughs> see. Yeah,
1: you know, it's, I, I find that to be the case, too. It's very easy in social media yes. to hide behind a keyboard and say things. But, yeah, they're not going to walk up to you and say certain things, I can tell.
5: I'm a little bit larger than most. Yes. But, um, I have people, you know, go and kind of take uh, the, the same line of thinking as our president has, being that it's a hoax and it's fake and it's just all political. And uh, the EPA's doing a great job right now because you know they're deregulating and uh, everyone needs to get a fair chance. And capitalism reigns, and uh, we need to have. It's just people don't get it until it affects them because right, right. these same people who say that it's a hoax, if they were living in certain parts of the, of the, um, of the, of the country, should of the world where they are having these droughts and these heat waves where they're getting hit by hurricane after hurricane, hurricane
1: Michael, hurricane
5: Florence, yes. just recently the wildfires in California. If I wish you can put these people right on the polar ice caps and they can just sit there and watch it melt. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah, no, this is normal. Uh, I, I just keep doing what I'm doing, and I try to always make that connection of what do you love? What do you want to really accomplish with your life on this earth? And a lot of people say they want to leave a legacy. I want to leave a legacy. I want to leave a legacy. I want to leave a legacy. You can't leave a legacy of uh, just you know death and destruction and uh, of... Um, of killing our planet for our kids. And I hate to you know go extreme, but you know at some point you have to sh- let people know that this is a possibility. Now, I don't think it's ever going to get there because I'm not going to allow it. <laughs> and a lot of people on this planet aren't going to allow it. But things can go really bad if we continue going the way we're going. And if you can make that connection to these people who are so negative about it and try to say that I'm wasting my time and I should be focusing on something else You'll be caught up in a negativity spiral because there are so many great causes out there, and I, I you know, applaud my athletes. Uh, I spoke to Chris Long before he won the uh, Walter Pay Man of the Year. I saw him uh, during the festivities of the Super Bowl, and just uh, you know, dapped him up and, and told him you know how proud I was of him because I played with them for the with the Rams for all four weeks after the Fal- Falcons. <laughs> the Falcons released me, and, yes, and you did go. To and the Rams. I went to the Rams, the Rams for the training Rams, camp. Sure. The coach told me that I was the best at fullback. He just said, you know, cap casualty, whatever. Anyways, but uh, Chris was always a stand-up guy, and I admired him from afar. Getting she had to play with him and against him was uh, an honor, and he is doing, you know, he's doing God's work. He's out there everywhere trying to help out. And Guys like him... I told him about the comic book. He was like, "Oh man, that's great! I, I, I had it. Like I was coming from vet." He's like, "Oh, that's dope, man! I love to, you know, kind of attach that to what I'm doing. I love to, you know, kind of add this to what I'm doing." Same with uh, Josh Norman, uh, quarterback. Saw Josh Norman, uh, Tequio Spike, a lot of guys that I'm friends with. Um, one of my initiatives is getting more players to understand that the work they do and where their heart is to really help youth you can add an environmental element to that or a sustainability element to that. You know, Giving them the opportunity to make green by going green or to save green by going green or to help with uh, these health issues they're having or to improve their physical environment, that's something that you can do simply by starting a conversation. Right. And giving a kid a comic book is the easiest way to start a conversation about the environment because they're thinking you're just giving them something that's cool to read.
1: Extreme weather is often a sight to behold, but safely from afar. Our seventh-placed episode gives us the opportunity to harness the weather, but in a video game. Gabriel Sasson and Jacques Kerner of Avalanche Studios were developers of a hit game called Just Cause 4, where the story actually revolves around the weather. Weather may be supernatural in the game, but these two developers work years to make it look and feel real. Why was it so important to add weather into the Just Cause franchise?
6: Yeah, so it's um, so we're we're a realistic uh, video game, and uh, as open world, we try to make the the world as uh, as beautiful as possible. But um, it used to be beautiful in uh, in a scenery sense, and we decided to uh, to bring it to the next level and bring uh, all the the dynamics of the of the real world in, in that as well and uh weather is the is an aspect of that yeah and, and extreme weather is really such a spectacle of nature that we really want yeah. to uh, to push um to push in that direction and also uh, for the spectacle of it but also to push the, the limits of our engine uh, to the maximum yeah and it sounds
1: like you wanted to jump in with something else there
6: Uh, Yeah, because, um, you know, we have our
0: main character, Rico Rodriguez, that is very, very powerful. And uh, we sensed that we wanted to give him a, a new challenge that was not only like other characters, but also like environmental. So it was really important to have uh, something new on the plate. And uh, thanks to, especially for the physics, I have to say, because, uh, you know, uh, Jacques and his team, they made an amazing job. Uh, They pushed to have like something that is much more than just like other characters. So the idea of the Extreme Matter came out and we took a lot of references around uh, South America and uh, uh, Patagonia. And uh, we tried to, to, you know, uh, conglomerate everything together in a in a in a place with all the extreme weather, but it's it's kind of like uh, the proper rival to Rico. So that's why it was really important to have this.
1: Was there a phenomena that was particularly difficult to recreate, more difficult than perhaps another to recreate within the game of the different types of weather?
6: Yes. So for sure, the the resounding, <laughs> resounding. Yes, there. <laughs> The tornado was the most difficult and involved the the, the most amount uh, of people. So I, I joke sometimes that like not only the tornado sucks everything around it, but it also uh, sucked a lot of developers <laughs> that were not committed to like a, a more important feature. And uh, yeah, there w- it was astounding. Uh, it, it's it's really a set piece, and uh, it deserved to uh, the treatment that it had. And uh, it's really uh, but. There was a lot of a lot about it that uh, that stretched uh, the, the limitations of the the, the hardware uh, and uh, development and try, like figuring out. Um, first, it's huge; it's a kilometer at least a kilometer high. Yeah, uh, we actually made it narrower than a than a real tornado in terms of the the wind field Sure. the, the, the so it, it is more extreme in, st- in terms of the, the winds generated. I think it's a... Uh, uh, so
1: what is your tornado we... rated on the EF scale? You know here we rate the scale based on the enhanced Fujita scale. Did, did you
6: consider what type of rating your tornadoes would have? Yeah. So on the Enhanced Fujita scale, it would be uh, EF5+. plus. Okay. <laughs> extreme well, there That would explain yeah, because... why
1: it's picking up large airplanes that I saw when I watched some of the games.
7: <laughs> That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. <laughs> Mm,
8: mm, mm. visit carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be convenient comfortable ah.
1: harry enton a senior writer and analyst for cnn politics sat down with us to discuss how weather and politics intersect specifically enton touched on the subject of election predictability and how prediction within the political spectrum is not very far off from the meteorological weather prediction. Enton also discussed how different types of weather can favor certain outcomes in an election. I wanna now go to the political modeling and forecasting that you do. Um, what, what type of data do you use when you make your political forecast?
9: Yeah, I, I would say that there are a few uh, a few key tools. Number one, obviously, we're looking at polls. Um, and, you know, I think that there was a lot of discussion after 2016 about the accuracy and the precision of public polling. I'll uh, point out, you know, I think one of the great problems of 2016 was that there was an inability on some forecasters to relay properly the uncertainty around their estimates because they didn't look at enough years of data, right? I think that this is something that also happens in meteorology all the time was, oh, something hasn't happened in the last 20 years. Therefore, we can't possibly see it happen. But in fact, if you take into account a larger data set, which is what we do with the forecasting I'm currently doing at uh, CNN, as well as something that my uh, former colleagues at 538 do particularly well, they take into year, uh, a number of years as far back as they possibly can of polling data to fully understand what how... Precise, how accurate has this polling data tended to be in forecasting? So, polling is one thing. Um, we are also looking at climatology, or what I would call climatology for uh, political forecasting. That is the fundamentals, looking at stuff like fundraising, looking at stuff like the political leaning of the state in past elections. Um, this is, I would almost say, this is almost like a model output statistic model, right? Um, where we are taking into account a slew of variables, not just the polling, but also the fundamentals, because what we often find is that things tend to come back towards the fundamentals. The polls, let's say the polls say that someone's ahead by five, but the fundamentals suggest that someone should be losing by six. It Probably the polls are closer to the truth, but instead of winning by six, the person may only win by three, which is something we often see in weather, right, where maybe in the, the darkest days of winter, there's a low temperature forecast that's to be negative 10 by the NAM model in New York City. But you know, with Urban Heat Island, the chance of actually getting down a negative 10 is not very high. So the model output statistic might say, actually, you know, we think it might be closer to one degree Fahrenheit. And that's where it usually ends up being. So the any good political model takes into account, in my mind, the polling, as well as those fundamentals. And from there, it's properly weighting the two factors to figure out where we'll actually end up.
1: Uh, what, what type of weather typically favors a party or a candidate? Uh, I, I know there's some peer review literature, and frankly we've even published some on it over at the University of Georgia looking back at Sandy. Uh, what, what is sort of the general rule of thumb in terms of weather and, and political uh, uh, parties and influence?
9: I would say I would say the general rule is that incumbents, when they respond well to um, historic and bad weather events, tend to receive a boost in the polls. You know, you mentioned 2012 with uh, Barack Obama, the president at the time, and we saw that his numbers in, in coastal New Jersey and uh, along uh, Long Island and Staten Island were considerably better than you might otherwise expect. Uh, I think that there was a real boost in his numbers because of what they saw was his uh, good reaction to... Hurricane Sandy. Uh, We saw, for instance, in Florida, uh, Rick Scott over the last few years, the current governor who's running for Senate there, has seen his numbers uh, climb to its highest ever levels uh, following some hurricanes in the last few years. Uh, And then I think my honest favorite story is back in 2006, Tom Reynolds, who was the head of the National uh, Congressional uh, Republican Campaign Committee, was in a real fight for reelection. There was a real thought that he might leave lose, and then there was a freak lake effect snowstorm in Buffalo, which was the area that he represented, and he responded quite positively towards that. He was able to gather, you know, show himself on the ground, show that he was involved, and Reynolds, I believe, because of that freak snowstorm, may have very well won a re-election that he might not otherwise have won, and remember, he was a Republican in a very good Democratic year in 2006. So I would say the number one thing that how weather affects elections and politicians is that if incumbents respond well to it and the constituents see them responding well to it, they tend to receive a a bump in the polls. Uh,
1: With some of the recent hurricane activity we've seen in North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, uh, elsewhere, do you have a sense of whether these events are affecting the current election cycle?
9: I think that there was a real hope among Republicans, for example, that Rick Scott, who, you know, is running for Senate in Florida, will receive a boost in his polling uh, following the hurricanes. Interestingly, we really haven't seen that. Um, and in fact, Rick Scott is probably polling in his worst position all year. But I think that's part of what goes on in political forecasting it also sometimes goes on in weather forecasting. That is, you might be so focused on an individual variable that you tend to cast aside the other variables that might be confounded or conflicting with those. So, for instance, in the state of Florida, yeah, Rick Scott might have had what a, you know, uh, electoral uh, uh, an analyst might say was a good hurricane, right? He reacted well to it. But at the same time, Bill Nelson and the Democrats were finally really matching him on television dollar for dollar for dollar. And that tended to override perhaps the effect that Rick Scott got in the polling that indicated that most people thought he had handled the hurricane well and certainly better than Bill Nelson. Uh, but it was overridden. And I think that's something we oftentimes see as in weather as well, right, where we say, well, that low pressure system actually ends up a little bit closer to the coast than we thought. So it means X. But wait a minute. We didn't take into account that maybe that um, high pressure system in Quebec uh, acted a little bit differently than we thought. And that actually overruled the effect of the low being a little bit closer to the coastline. <laughs>
1: Many of us will never forget the scenes of devastation along the Florida Gulf Coast following Hurricane Michael on October 10, 2018. This powerful storm was recently upgraded to a Category 5 hurricane, the highest ranking on the Saffir-Simpson scale. We invited meteorologists Stephanie Abrams, Jen Corfagno, and Chris Bruin to share their experiences as they prepared for and experienced this destructive hurricane. by Monday, I think it was pretty evident this thing was going to be a major, even if it was going to be a cat three. In my mind, I'm going to respond to a Cat Three in the same way that I do a Cat Four. Yeah, uh, but, yeah. but but there. But I, maybe I, not everybody would. My, and that's the yeah. point. I think other people have different thresholds. Now, Jen, you actually flew over, I believe, and saw some mm-hmm. of the damage. Yeah. Well, just this. What what were your impressions? As someone that's been through and seen a lot of storm damage.
10: Well, so we left Tallahassee. I was with the Customs and Border Protection. Um, it was a group from Detroit that came down, and they took us on an aerial tour because at this point, this was Friday. I took this aerial tour. It was very. Different difficult to get into Mexico beach. Uh, and so they brought us in over the air. We were able to land on the beach so I could get on the ground and see the damage firsthand. And it was just from the air. It was very dramatic. And you, you went, you saw some damage to complete damage. Uh, and so there definitely was a gradient between where the, the true cat four damage was. And when you get out into cat three, cat two type winds, and we know that the core of the worst winds, um, is going to be confined to that eye wall. And, um, not everyone is going to feel cat four, but you have to prepare like you are right because what if there's a wobble in the track right and then all of a sudden you shift it right Right. I wanted to kidding yeah. it let me
1: set this up Steph, because the word on the street is you don't scare easily no. in these situations that's <laughs> no. the word on the street it is that's true but you left
0: I did this first time why? I think I've ever actually left a storm I was in Ike with the land I mean I, because here's what happened when I was planning to go out on Tuesday we actually were going to stay in Mexico Beach and I could not find we could not find a structure that I felt okay even taking a cat three in right on the beach highway 98 from the, all the experience I've had at 15 years being at the Weather Channel, I know even I thought of Ike and the Bolivar Peninsula, which was a Cat 2 at Landfall, and they were wiped out from the surge. I knew that if this just went over to Panama City, that surge alone right there on Highway 98 would have taken us out because that's where we found homes. And then just structurally, I was iffy. So we went over to Port St. Joe where we found a house that was 24 feet off the ground. I was like, okay, I feel safe here, even with the Cat 3, with the water rise and everything that was built in 2014. It had the latest and greatest of everything. But then when I saw that coming in as a Cat for and the potential, like Jen just mentioned about that little wobble, if it had wobbled in St. Joe and not Mexico beach was in that eye wall, I'm not sure we would have made it there. And that's what did it for me is I guess it's my experience and my knowledge that it was literally highway 98. We were on highway 98 and I am glad I picked up my crew. We, We finished our live shots early and I told our producers, I called back to work. We had talked to other meteorologists. I was like, guys, we're out. Like, if this eye wall goes over Port St. Joe, I don't care when this house was built. I know what it's like when the water's coming right off the water. I was fine with the wave and surge and everything, but just structurally, a Cat Four, maybe Cat Five eye wall. No, I know what Andrew did. I know what all these storms did. It's not. It's not worth it. There's. These are people's lives and life. Are you? I was out.
1: And just a little context on your experience. Not only do you have experience just covering these storms, you grew up or spent quite a bit yeah, of time in Florida. in Florida, in South Florida.
0: Yeah, and Hurricane Andrew is actually one of the reasons. I went into uh, meteorology, Um, you know, as a kid and it came ashore and I saw the damage after and I thought, how in the world did wind and, you know, rain cause this? So I saw it firsthand in Andrew when I was a kid. And then just being here for 15 years, the damage from even I thought back to Florence, I was like, that was a cat one. I could barely stand up at times with some of the gusts. No way am I going to be on Highway 98. I think it's irresponsible to do that. It's not worth the risk. It's just not.
1: Right. Any other thoughts from you in terms of just your initial experience? Chris being in the storm it was,
5: uh, so we were in a brand new hotel. Stephanie ended up coming yeah,
1: up. Yeah, I came city over Beach. to where they okay. all were yeah. because it
0: was like, you know, a huge, solid, huge Even sub- if the yeah. eye wall yeah. went. So, how you many know,
5: weather channels we
0: sort five, of your
4: eyes were within cruise. that? I, I mean, there was so, a yeah. good 20, 20, employees. Because there's
0: not a lot of cities you see in between, mm-hmm. you know, like Panama City, even over towards Apalachicola, you'd have to go farther than that. So, yeah. that was kind of the nearest big city with sturdy structures right. that we all felt comfortable right.
4: in. Yeah, and then I remember, I mean, we were in the eye wall, or probably, we were more so in the outer eye wall where we had maybe 100 mile per hour gusts at the worst of it, um, but even the sliding glass doors at the lobby were shaking. I don't know, you were probably outside during yeah. that, uh, but I remember we were all just h- kind of hunkering down, and you would see they had you know new fences that all got panels that got blown out. I mean, if you got hit by that, you're looking at you yeah. Know, but the roof
0: the of the hotel next to us started to tear away. Oh. You know, oh I saw so, that, and yeah.
4: then um, some of the other high rises lost windows. I mean, we ended up not having much in the way of. Structural damage, but all the rooms on the opposite of the ocean all had water damage. Right. Two inches of standing water inside the hotel
1: rooms, and
0: we weren't even in the eye wall. And that
1: was right? just from the oh, rain. Oh no, yeah. that, that was actually not even in the eye wall. And I want to actually kind of pivot over to Jen because you were in Tallahassee, Florida, mm-hmm. and I, I spent a lot of time in Tallahassee, Florida as well. And in a sense, Tallahassee was on the eastern fringe of the yeah. storm. Oh, spared si- the worst. Spared the worst, but still significant mm-hmm. damage, power outages, trees all over. I've seen some of the the
10: pictures. Mm-hmm. I Ninety mean, percent of the town was without power the next day, and right. you know it, it doesn't take even a Cat One hurricane to cause. You can have strong tropical storm winds for an extended period of time, which we had in Tallahassee to cause all those trees to come down and to cause those widespread power outages. Yeah, you know, we went to Tallahassee because we wanted to focus on the inland impacts, and we know when we you know show up in a City, people notice right the weather channel is there so things could, could be you know could go to be bad um, we also knew that there was a chance Tallahassee would be on those you know eastern fringes of it but there was what 400,000 uh, power outages overall and we had about 120,000 of them yeah. so a big population were affected um, in Tallahassee now they're able to get their power back on much quicker not like cities like Mariana which it's going to take oh, a week I, yeah, or a month
1: intense. what's harder predicting the weather or predicting people. How do people respond to weather warnings? Dr. Jen Henderson and Dr. Julie Demuth sat down with us to help bridge the gap between delivering potentially life-saving weather information and how the public responds to that information. They also help answer the question, why don't people just listen to the forecast? Here's their answer. Recently in the news, Backstreet Boys, uh, there was a recent event where um, there were clearly uh, some examples or possibilities of storms in the area. Uh, Apparently, there were some warnings about the particular weather, but some people had general mission tickets or wanted to stay in line for those tickets for that. And I think there were uh, tens of people that ended up getting hurt. And this gets to this question of... The Why don't the experts at least say, why don't the people or policymakers or decision makers listen to the forecast and the information that's out there versus the public, which always says, well, it must be nice to be meteorologist where you're wrong all of the time or 50 percent of the time. That's the <laughs> battle that we all face. And you all are you know it well. Where where are we in that? Are we wrong all of the time? Have we been wrong enough that there's a cry wolf syndrome in the public, or are are there reasons why the public just has a, a sort of a, a life or opportunity cost where they're willing to take certain risks because what they're doing in their day to day lives is just more important at the time? <laughs> that, Julie, Julie, you take that one. <laughs>
7: I was just looking at Jen, hoping that (laughs) she would take
1: that one. Um, It's it's a loaded question there, but it's one that I think we need to deal with because, you know, we face it.
7: Yeah. Well, this has, it's a great question. And I think there's so many different pieces to the answer. So I will start. And then I know Jen. Let's unpack
1: them all. Let's unpack them all. We've got the time.
7: Jen will really add to this with her articulate views. I think a couple of things. One is I always draw this analogy with medicine and with public health, which is that, A doctor, I'm sure, has their idea of if a person has some sort of health issue or is at risk of having some health issue, maybe something that's more chronic, but even things that can be acute, the doctor probably has in his or her mind what they think that patient should do at the end of the day, what a patient does is based on that information that they have, but also what is it that they value? What are their experiences? What other factors um, really shape and and maybe even in some cases inhibit what they want to do? And so I think if we take that and apply it to these kinds of situations, it's really helpful because people can get information about a weather forecast. And of course, one thing we haven't hit on yet, which has been kind of implied in everything we're talking about is this amazing issue of uncertainty. There is limits to predictability. And even when we have a Clear sense of when something might happen. Even if a warning is out, there is still uncertainty about whether that event is going to unfold. That goes back to Jen's sort of um, spatiality and temporality aspect, how bad it's going to be, whether it's going to intensify, whether it's going to weaken. And people are aware of those uncertainties through their experiences with weather. And so even if they're under a warning, there still isn't um, a clear... chance that it's going to affect somebody in a certain way. I think we start also getting into these issues of for certain types of events like severe storms people have a lot of experiences and those experiences you can draw a distribution around them. Sometimes those storms are really intense and sometimes they're really weak. Maybe they get hailed on, maybe there's lightning, um, maybe there's less of that issue or maybe it's farther away and so they're probably pulling all of those experiences and the uncertainty and how bad it was or wasn't in the past into that decision making and then when they're standing in line again there, there are these things that they also value. Maybe they've invested a lot of money into these tickets and that would pose a great loss for them. Maybe this is their favorite band in the world. I have bands that I would stand in a thunderstorm and go see, especially <laughs> something like that where people really love their music. Who, who, you know? are, the,
1: who are those bands? Are those? <laughs> I'm not no, sure that I
7: want to see that on no, air. I, I'm
11: serious.
7: I would probably do that for um, The Head and the Heart. I would do that for Jack Johnson. I would definitely do that. I probably Actually, so I have been in bad weather for 311 before, so there All are right. a couple of bands Cool. No, I,
1: I love I love music, so I just want to get a, a sample of your music taste. There, <laughs> I would totally do it for Depeche Mode. <laughs>
7: I'm not sure I would do it for the Backstreet Boys, but I mean, that yeah. happens around here all the I time at Red Rocks.
1: So <laughs> I want it that way. Not. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. So 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 you're saying then that people do value sort of they have these sort of personalized values on their experience at the moment. You know, the, the cost or the personal cost of the tickets, the time of standing in line. I mean, I've written about this before in Forbes when I say that, you know, we have this turnaround, don't drown. We clearly see a flooded road. But uh, as as a colleague of all of ours, Castle Williams, one of our graduate students at University Georgia has talked about the value proposition of that that parent getting to their child's daycare may be more important to them, and they'll take the risk of driving through that road because they don't they, they don't want to get to their kid.
7: Exactly. Yeah.
8: Jen, do you have anything you want to add?
1: Jen, what do you want to add to the conversation here?
8: Well, I was just going to say I can't um, really add too much to what Julie has said. I think she said it perfectly on that side of like how people are thinking about and processing information and that that's dynamic as well as the weather is dynamic. So you're dealing with multiple complexity on top of complexity here. But I think you raise an interesting question, too, about sort of the forecasting side and the forecasters themselves, the meteorologists and how they're thinking about, um, you know, how people are responding. And so I think one of the things that's interesting in this community is to think about our expectations uh, as experts about how the public behaves. And so to go back to Julie's um, analogy of the medical community and public health, which I think is perfect for this, the doctor can sort of give all the advice, give all the information that they can. But at the end of the day, they really have to relinquish that sort of um, sense of either control or sense of like wanting to follow up with the patient and, you know, try to convince them to take certain actions. They can do everything they can. But at the end of the day, you know, the the sort of individual's um, choices and decisions are in large part up to them. If they've got as much information as they can have, they've gotten it as many ways as they can. Um... And we're not sure people are getting information all the ways they can. So I don't want to discount that. But but if they have a good understanding and they're and they're making these choices, we sort of have to step back and let people make choices and recognize that that's part of um, what we expect from experts in our other aspects of our lives, too.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I I, uh, talked to the administrator of NASA, Jim Bridenstine, recently for the Weather Geeks podcast, and we were talking about this notion that some people say that you could have too much lead time for a tornado uh the average time right now is 13 14 minutes or so and i've heard arguments that one one hour could be too long because people might start playing a video game or cooking and say "Ah, i've got 45 minutes before it's going to hit us uh but he made the point that you know people are big girls and boys give them the information and let them make the decisions for themselves Do, do you agree with that
7: This is Julie. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, again, going back to this analogy, can you imagine if a doctor knew you had some diagnosis, but wasn't sure that you were going to make some decision that he or she thought was sort of ideal and then so held off on telling you that information, that would probably be frustrating for you. And I think this goes to Jen's point that we tend to focus only on one outcome or maybe one dependent variable, and that might be whether people take shelter from a tornado. But there's so many other points that are antecedent in that process. So they might information seek, they might information share, they might take that information and give it to somebody who wouldn't have gotten that information directly from, let's say their NOAA Weather Radio or their phone app. They might go outside and assess the risk. They might um, do any other number of things that then lead them that we know are part of how people assess their risk and make a decision. And so giving them time to be able to do those things and also evaluate the uncertainty that is inevitably associated with the event So that they can ultimately make a decision for themselves, factoring in all these other things that might be important to them about whether to shelter or not, or whether their shelter is safe enough. I mean, we have done a lot of work with members of the public who are more vulnerable, who live in manufactured homes or who are at work or any other issues. And in some cases, they just don't have a safe place. We actually have great, really powerful quotes from people who have said, there is no safe place. And so if they have longer lead time, that gives them the opportunity to find a place that maybe isn't the... Ultimate safe place, but is safer relative to where they are. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car
11: buying should be.
1: Now we're into the top three episodes of Weather Geeks in the year one. Dun, 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 dun. And my guest for the episode worked so hard throughout her life to make it to the top. Stephanie Abrams made it to the Weather Channel after only working a handful of months in local TV. That's not easy, folks. She took hold of the knowledge she gained in school and smashed the glass ceiling for women in STEM everywhere. Here's her story. even though you were a card-carrying gator after you got your degree at University of Florida, we you go. did here go here over. there no, we go. No, and I want to here establish this, though, because you did go over to Florida State. Tell us why I you did. made that trek. I did.
0: All right, so when I was at Florida, I was super involved, and I took every math and science available. At one point, I wanted to be an astronomer. Right. I wanted to go to NASA. I wanted to be a geologist. Right. I was going to minor in geology. Sure. So I ended up taking a meteorology class. It was just your basic, you know, thousand-level course, sure. just your basic, basic class, and I loved it because, first of all, it explained why I grew up in Florida. It rained on one side of the street and not the other. Exactly. It explained Hurricane Andrew, and it used math and physics and chemistry. It used multiple different disciplines all in one, and it would explain why the sky was blue. Right. Now, it was in the physics building, and I'm not going to you know sit here and pretend like I'm super smart, because I'm not at all. I was the girl oh. who asked a million and five questions in class. Sure. I cried through my math classes, because you get an automatic math minor it's, with this. It's, it's
1: hard. Yeah, we, This it's this so field hard. is hard. Yeah, it's we, so hard. Hard. People don't realize how much math and physics is behind so what we hard. do.
0: All the derivations. Yeah. You do all these sure. math equations, which I still don't even know what I was doing, sure, Dr. Marshall. Sure. I'm just like, okay, sure.
1: Yeah, sure. No, yeah. yeah. No, the MAGO equation, I, I don't just whip it out and punch <laughs> right. myself either. So.
0: so there was just a lot of trying, trying, trying. And so I just loved this class. And it yeah. was in the physics building. And it was math heavy and physics heavy. And I still loved it. And I was like, oh, yeah. okay, I'm going to try this. And so there was no meteorology program at Florida. Florida State, all of my credits would transfer without any issue. So I was going to go to Michigan, you know, that I could get the sure, Michigan, in, sure. but it wouldn't transfer and I have to basically start over with undergrad stuff. Sure. So that's how I ended up at Florida,
1: at Florida, State, Florida State. Florida State. Well, and you, I mean, it certainly, you know, they had a really good meteorology program.
0: How I am, how I am is I grew up watching Oprah. Okay, that's Mm -hmm. what our generation did. You did not miss an episode of Oprah. And one of the reasons, one thing that I don't know, for some reason, I feel things very deeply. I'm just emotional. I'm always aware. I'm always learning. I'm always listening and lurking the passion, the passion. Right. And I just remember watching Oprah and I'm like, why does everyone love Oprah so much? Oh, she's authentic and she's herself. And you can tell, I'm telling you, watching TV, someone that you don't really like and you can't figure out why, I'm telling you, it's because they're not authentic. Exactly. And so when I got into this business, and I didn't even think I was really going to be on TV, I just went into it because I loved math and science and I needed to do something in that arena. And I said, well, just give this a try. I have no kids. I'm not married. Oh, what's the worst that's going to happen? You know, I can always go back and get other degrees or whatever. And so my kind of my. And I still have to this day is that, like, I need to be as true to myself as I can on TV as I am off TV. And I do think that that people know that and that I am. I mean, obviously, there's some tweaking you have to do. Right. But, yeah, that's where it really came from, actually watching Oprah.
1: We just sat here for almost 35 minutes and talked about your meteorological pedigree, your background. But yet some people will still reduce what you do and what you are to a weather girl. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that?
0: That's on them. I'm not. Listen, we for some reason this society. But I don't. I don't
1: I, as a man, I don't deal with that. No one calls me a weather no. boy, and they better better not. Frankly,
0: <laughs> that's a funny word. I've never heard someone say weather boy.
1: Exactly.
11: Yeah, that's it's, it's my a, point.
0: Yeah, you know. Listen, we definitely still have some barriers we need to break down, and I think that we are making huge strides with all of that. But again, I think, and this is again, this is just a life lesson thing. If someone is acting like that. Like, that's on you, dude. Like, I, I'm not taking on that energy. That's not how I see myself. And again, I don't really even get, there are, I'll be like meteorologist, but the reality is I don't get so offended because I know my credentials. I exactly. don't care. Exactly. I have two degrees. I have a minor in math. Like, exactly. I, I, so, you know, here's the thing. If someone wants to say, oh, well, that's not, you know, you should wear certain clothes or you should do this. It's like, oh, how about you go work on yourself? <laughs> you know, someone taught, I saw something in a talk one. They said, if someone's pointing at you, you notice there's one finger pointing at the other person and three pointing back at you, you know? Mm -hmm. So I try to remember that. And again, I have not mastered any of this. I still have really, really bad days and get offended. Because we're human. We're human, you know? And yes, so I get upset about things and then sometimes I don't care and everything. But that's really kind of what I want to continue to practice in my life, whether it's professionally or personally, and really want all the girls out there to know, is that like, again, first of all, if you are getting offended by something, Look into yourself. Why is this offending me? What can I change? How can I do better? Right, because it's never about, um, like, when someone's yelling at you. It's always about yourself. It's never, it's never really about the other person. Right. You know.
1: Exactly. So, 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 in terms of your career, though, do you feel like? Being a woman, have, you, have there have there been things where you feel that like have hindered you in your career because of that? Or you feel like, no, I, I just kind of plowed on.
0: I plowed on. You and know? yes, I mean, obviously, do you run into some walls here and there sure. about being a well, Oh, you can't do this. Oh, yes, I can. Yeah. You know, and I have those stories where I'm like, well, you can't do this because you're... Yes, I can. Let me show you, you know? And so I think it's that hustle. It's keep plowing on. If someone says no, you just prove them wrong. Right. Yes, you can. But it's having that confidence to do that for me. Like I said at the beginning, for me, I had to sink or swim. I didn't have a safety net of any sort. I didn't have somewhere to go back to. I didn't have finan- I didn't I didn't have that safety net. Right. So I had to make it happen. And so I think that's why, you know, I was so aggressive and I hustled so hard and I didn't care if someone said no, I was going to keep pushing. Sure.
1: America sees every single weather phenomenon you can think of, and our number two Weather Geeks episode guest has been coined America's weatherman because he's seen and covered it all. Al Roker from NBC's Today Show has become a hometown name for decades and is really proud of his craft, whether it be on the air, in books, or at the holidays on your TV screen. If you were to look back on your career, what do you think it was about what you were doing or what you brought to the table that was starting to attract people at that time to who you were and your your capability?
11: Um, I, you know, it's it's that's kind of like you you, you 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 love sausage, but you don't really want to see how it's made. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I, you know, I, I think it. Um, I I don't think I took and I still don't take myself that seriously. I, Mm -hmm. you know, to be perfectly honest, uh, I don't I don't ever call myself a meteorologist. Uh, I am I'm a weather person. Uh, I've learned enough over the years doing it uh, to, you know, to give a credible presentation. But uh, uh, I I have a respect for the the material and I try not to let that get in. I, I always try to remember that. The weather is the most important thing, but let's have a good time if we can. If, if the weather is such that, you know, it's not life and death, it's not you know, the end of the world. And, you know, let's not get too
1: crazy about it. I want let's let's stay right there for a second, because that's even now a a discussion. And, you know, I I hear people and there are discussions about, oh, he's not a meteorologist. He is a meteorologist. But the point you're making is, you you know, enough that you are you connect with people, you have the right personality and you get the message across. What are your thoughts on this whole sort of debate out there, even contemporarily in terms of what it takes to communicate the message?
11: Well, look, I think. You can be the greatest meteorologist in the world. But if you can't communicate that, nobody's going to hear your message. And if you can't convey that, if you're not excited about it, if you're not passionate about it, if you don't, you know, revel in in new technology and new ways of graphically presenting uh, uh, the weather, you're going to get left behind, you know, because let's face it, we all know right now, uh, anybody can pick up their phone and get the weather but that that app doesn't give you context it doesn't give you meaning it doesn't it doesn't break it down for you to a certain extent of why okay it says this but this is why it might not happen or it might happen or it could be worse. Those are the things that we do uh, that that I think uh, because of the, the people I have backing me up. What do you consider as your
1: sort of legacy from the past and going forward uh,
11: i i i I guess my feeling is it um I would like to think that uh a I haven't wasted anybody's time, and b that if it, the time spent with me, whether it was on the weather channel or whether it's on the today show, that hopefully they feel a little bit better when they turn off the TV than before they turned it on. And, and if, and if I've informed them and helped them get to their day and make them smile just a little bit, then uh, I think that's, that's a, that's a good thing to have, uh, have been known for.
1: And now we debut our number one episode, and it involves one of America's favorite thunder snow superfans. We sat down with legendary meteorologist Jim Cantori to discover what it's like to live the life of a storm tracker. When cities see him coming, many people take that as a cue that they better run for the other direction because the weather's going to get nasty. Take a listen at what one of these Cantori deployments is really like and also find out what motivates him to report in some of the worst weather conditions Mother Nature has to offer. You're very much known for your sort of what I call Cantori deployments. People are like, looking, oh, Jim's headed to my town. That's the problem. Walk us through a Jim Cantori deployment. I mean, what happens, the process? I mean, do you you, do you guys sort of plan where you want to go? How, walk us through what happens over I a mean, 24, 48 hour period.
12: I, I mean, I have a feeling I'm going out, especially with with a bigger snow event or severe or, or certainly the hurricanes. So, the, you know, you kind of start shuffling life around because you can't just stop living all of a sudden. Right. When you have to go out. Right. So, if there's appointments, they have to be canceled or moved. Um, you just have to kind of shut things down at home, get packed. Uh, and over the years, I've learned <laughs> how to pack like three different suitcases. Sure, sure. I have a spring severe, I have a, and I have a well, two really winter suitcase, and then another one I bring with me right. that just has essentially my jackets. Because without those, we're kind of screwed. Sure. So I can't pack those. Well, I have to sure. carry those with me on the plane. So either it's the spring outfit and the summer outfit, or the or the or the winter and the fall outfits that uh, that go out in the field with me. But those are. Pretty much pre packed. <laughs>
1: so, and you, do you have a team of producers or people that kind of go out with you? Or is it
12: My a- producer is Steve Paterack. He's been with me for the last uh, two and a half years. And our our inaugural time together was the 2015 snow blitz in oh, Boston. Oh, wow. yes. Okay. I
1: remember that. Coverage.
12: that and that was Snow. Yeah. That was the big That was, snow was that for me. the yeah. big that was viral the one. one? Yeah. My, on the day before my birthday. Exactly. So, February 15th, yeah. 2015, at about 5.15 in the morning. That's when it got crazy. But, um, you know, you just got to be ready to go. And then when you get out there, a lot of times, especially with my shift, because I work six to nine in the morning, it's like, OK, it's right, go get on a plane now. So then we get there. It's three o'clock. We have to drive sometimes two, three hours. Then you finally wind down, but you're already going into it kind of now, kind but, of a little tired. But your adrenaline
1: gets you But through. that 6 to 9 is a relatively new slot. I mean, you've been doing 8 Yeah, A&HQ I started,
12: when I first started at the Weather Channel at 22 years old, right. I was doing the early mornings.
1: Okay, so you've kind of circled back.
12: But doing it at 54
1: <laughs> is a little different, Doc. <laughs> right.
12: Okay, it's a lot harder to get up at 3 o'clock oh, in the morning because I, 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 you could stay I, up. Stay. When you were 22. Absolutely. All right. Right. But now, forget no way. Right. Absolutely.
1: Now, as you're kind of transitioning to these cities, do you get a lot of people bannering about asking you what's going on? Hey, Cantori, what do you think? I I can imagine. You know know what to
12: say is is it's more the smaller towns um, than than the cities. Really? Uh, Because I think cities are used to seeing broadcasters out there all the time. But like when when we showed up in Bethel, Connecticut, uh, yeah. Out of all places, you know what I mean, because I was I was I wanted to be far enough west. We were playing the dry slot. We were playing the back edge sure. of the snow band, and I'm like, you know, somewhere on that I-84 corridor, there's no place to go. Either you're in Bethel or Danbury, or you're in New York State. I mean, there's just right. not that many places on Interstate 84. So we stayed in Bethel, but the whole town came out. They, were, they couldn't <laughs> believe we were there in Bethel.
11: Right,
1: right. It you, was it,
12: like it was like uh, you know. The July Fourth, so
1: a celebrity moment, even in the midst of a right. pretty significant right. weather but event. It, but that's
12: cool; it keeps yeah. us going. People are, over the years, if you ask me, the number one thing about being in the field, people coming out and, and cheering you on, and you know, bringing us food because yeah. we're just going and right. going and going, and we don't have to even have time to stop and eat. But I'll never forget the time. This is this is the moment that changed me as a broadcaster. That we were in uh, Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina. For, for one of the 94 hurricanes and storms and depressions I've covered. And this I, I could just see this lady coming at me from the, across the beach. And the beach was packed. People were just lining up all over the place. And, and she came up to me and she looked at me and she goes, Mr. Cantori, I know it's going to get really bad here, but I just wanted you to know that I'm really glad that you're here to take us through it. I never forgot and that.
1: And so that's and the motivation.
12: so instead of swashbuckling meteorologist... I'm like now my life has purpose. Yeah. Now I have purpose when I'm out here. So I have a I have a goal. I have a job to do. That I I'll, I remember that. So I'll that so that, 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 that,
1: that you know th- there are some people that can be critical of of what some of us do or the colleagues that go out into the field. But
12: uh, and, and you, I'm so glad you said that yeah. because uh, a guy who I consider a great friend now, Craig Fugate. Yeah. Uh, you know who Craig? Is. Oh, I, Craig and All I right. know each other well. FEMA administration Former FEMA administrator. Exactly. sure. He was very critical of that. He couldn't understand why we were out there. And we talked about it. And I said, Craig, honestly, if I'm gonna ask people to leave their homes, the least I could do is stay back and let them watch me from a safe distance, take them through what happens. And I meant that. and I know he understood that I meant that. And so from that point on, it's kind of like we get each other.
1: Well, that wraps up our recap of the first year of Weather Geeks podcast. We're so happy to have had the opportunity to share our passion and our innovative guests with you, the listeners. Remember to keep tuning in every Wednesday so that you don't miss the future exciting episodes we have planned for you.